1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 12 to 29. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champions strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. And give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul in the Israelite army at the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. A few more scriptures. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and he set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Everybody say amen. Just kidding. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother... Eliab heard David talking to the men. He was angry. What are you doing here anyway, David? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. David replies and he says, what have I done now, Eliab? What wrong have I done? What did I do to you to make you so upset at me? I was only asking a question. And he walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. Tonight, I want to preach a message that I've entitled, Where Are the Brothers? Look at your neighbor and say, Where Are the Brothers? Before we continue, would you just pray with me one more time that God would have his way in the service tonight? Lord Jesus, we lift up your name in this place, and God, we pray that your spirit would not only be felt in this room, but Lord, in every room that this sermon, Lord, that this service is being broadcasted in every home, Lord, in every church, Lord, in every living room, whatever it may be, God, we just pray that your presence and your anointing and your spirit will be felt, and God, that these words, God, that this message, God, the word that you have given tonight will go forth beyond this room and rest in the hearts and minds of everybody that will hear it. Lord, we pray that your kingdom will come that your will be done. Everybody say in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Where are the brothers? I want to give a shout out to Marcus for making my, my graphic for me. I was also supposed to be video mixing tonight, which would have been a bit challenging also being the preacher. I asked Marcus if he would prefer to preach and I would continue to video mix, but he turned down the offer. So here I am. 
Sneakers. Sneakers have arguably never been more popular in history than right now. Those who would consider themselves to be enthusiasts are called sneakerheads. Brands such as Jordan, Nike, Converse, Puma, Under Armour, Yeezy, and Adidas top the charts in popularity. And if you don't know how much some collectible sneakers are worth, go ahead after church and look at the Flight Club website. Flight Club is a store in New York that sells new and used sneakers. And today, the picture that you see on the screen behind me is one of their most expensive pairs listed. It is the Nike Zoom LeBron 6 New York City, specifically in size 9, retailing for $83,787 US, which in Canadian is like $2 billion. And, and none of us would be able to afford that. And if that isn't enough for you, go ahead and do some research after service, not right now, on the top Air Jordan and Nike shoes that are retailing for over $100,000 in some cases. Or in one case in particular, there is a set of 24 karat gold sneakers that the rapper Drake owns worth an estimated $2 million. And if you are watching this, or if you are in the sanctuary tonight, and you consider yourself to be a sneakerhead, and you are investing this sort of money in shoes, I pray that the conviction of the Holy Ghost would grab you right now and shake you, that you would sell that and give at least part of it away to missions or your church or something, because there was a way better investment than Nike, Zoom, LeBron 6, New York City's in size 9. I promise. Nike, formerly Blue Ribbon Sports, American sportswear company headquartered in Oregon. It was founded in 1964 initially as Blue Ribbon Sports by Bill Bowerman, a track and field coach at the University of Oregon, and his former student, Phil Knight. They opened their first retail outlet in 1966 and then launched the Nike brand shoe in 1972. The company was then renamed Nike in 1978 and went public two years later. By the early 21st century, Nike had retail outlets and distributors in more than 170 countries, and its logo a curved check mark called the swoosh was recognized throughout the world. Today, Nike sits atop the sports apparel ladder worth about 35 to $37 billion. Adidas came in respectably at number two, being worth about $30 billion. But Nike was not always the top company in the sports apparel segment. There were two brothers, Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. A little more than 70 years ago, these German brothers parted ways in a bitter sibling rivalry. Their business split, the family divided, and soon enough, even the townsfolk in the place they were living migrated to the opposite sides of the city, depending on which brother you aligned with. This seemingly inconsequential feud in a provincial corner of Germany had enormous repercussions on what the future athletes would wear on their feet today. This made-for-theater generational story goes back to 1924 when the siblings formed the Dassler, Dassler Brothers Shoe Factory in the small Bavarian enclave of Herzogenarach. Adolf as the design craftsman and Rudolf as the charismatic salesman. They started off in their mother's laundry room before eventually rising to become a global giant. The big break came at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin when Adolf approached American sprinter Jesse Owens, unpacked a suitcase filled with spikes and persuaded him to run with a pair of their shoes. Getting COVID all over my notes. 
I'm just kidding, everybody. You can see the shoe behind me on the screen. It's not the most fashionable shoe. Today, it's probably worth some money, maybe not as much as the Nike Zoom LeBron 6 New York City's in size 9. But this is what they started out with. And so Jesse Owens puts on a pair, and he ends up winning four gold medals while other athletes whom the company outfitted took home an additional three gold, five silver, and a bronze medal. Dassler became an overnight commercial success. Sales exploded to 200,000 pairs a year and would have continued to grow if it were not for the outbreak of World War II. Adolf and Rudolf joined the war efforts in Germany. Their factory was converted to producing materials for Germany's war effort. It was during these wartime and intermediate post-war years when the relationship between the brothers began to fall apart. The exact cause today is still unknown, but theories range from simple jealousy and personal conflicts to political disagreements and betrayals. By 1948, the two broke off from each other and set up their own shops, one north of the river in their city and one on the south of the river in their city. Adolf named his new company as a de uh, derivative of his first and last name, Adidas, or as we know it today, Adidas. Rudolf initially tried Ruda, but then settled for Puma. If competition fosters innovation and progress, then Adidas and Puma came to define that pillar of capitalism in their day. The personal rivalry between the brothers deepened and fueled the drive for inter international footwear supremacy. Brand loyalty even took root among the locals in the town that they lived in, and some would proudly display Adidas, while others would only wear Pumas on their feet. Later on, their tribal learnings carried over to clothing and accessories. Some shopkeepers, such as butchers and bakers, would also refuse entry if somebody was wearing the footwear of the brother that they did not align with. For Addie and Rudy, the greatest marketing battles always laid in sponsoring athletes. Muhammad Ali, Franz Beckenbauer, and Zinedine Zidane became legendary sportsmen in the three stripes of Adidas. Soccer icons Pele and Maradona and tennis star Boris Becker reached their fame wearing Pumas. In what is possibly the first case of prominent Olympian receiving financial compensation to wear shoes, Rudolf paid Armin Harry, a German sprinter, to run in Pumas at the 100-meter final of the 1960 Summer Olympics. Harry had, won, uh, Harry had worn Adidas before, but Addy refused to pay him, and so his brother stepped in and decided to. The German won the dash wearing Pumas and became the first athlete to finish the 100-meter sprint in 10 seconds. But when he stepped onto the podium to receive his gold medal, he unlaced his Pumas and laced up a set of Adidas in hopes of cashing in from both sides of the coin. And of course, the brothers were furious at his actions. Ten years later, at the opening whistle of the 1970 World Cup final between Brazil and Italy, Pele bent down to tie his shoelaces in a seemingly ordinary act. In fact, it was all prearranged. Marketing ploy to draw the attention of millions of TV viewers to the Pumas that he was wearing on his feet. Never reconciling in life, Adolf and Rudolf both died in the 1970s, are buried on opposite ends of the same church graveyard, as far apart as was possible. In 2009, Adidas and Puma employees played a, soccer, a friendly game of soccer to try and bury the hatchet 
for the first time since the split. Despite the handshakes and goodwill, the bitter ghosts of their forefathers still hover above the town that they work in to this day. Everybody say sibling rivalry. Today, Adidas and Puma are the second and fourth largest sportswear manufacturers in the world. Respectively, Nike is first. Still headquartered in the same town, the two corporate giants are publicly traded on the stock exchange, and the controlling interests of the old family fractions are long gone. Now, this is quite a story about sibling rivalry. And if you have a brother or sister, you probably know a thing or two about sibling rivalry, or at least a little fight here or there. I've got a brother, and I cannot really think of a time that there was any bad blood and sibling rivalry. We, we had our fair share of fights, and, and he's younger than me. And uh, I, I really enjoyed fighting in situations, you know, maybe 10 years ago when I was a lot bigger than him. But as he kind of came through high school and graduated, and he became my size, and some might say a little bigger, uh, I stopped fighting him because I didn't want to lose. But other than that, I didn't really have any sibling rivalry with my brother. Now, when we look into the scripture, it is full of sibling rivalry. We can't go too far before we see Cain killing Abel. There's Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, and the prodigal son returning home only for his older brother to be upset at the warm welcome of the father. And without question, there seemed to be some sort of rivalry and division between the sons of Jesse. David was the youngest brother of his household. His older brothers consisted of Eliab, Abinadab, Shimea, Nethaniel, Radai, and Ozem. And I would say that they were all bitter at him because he was the only one that had a normal, sensible name. Thank you. Just kidding. But there is no doubt some sort of quarrel, some rivalry, some sort of jealousy and anger and bitterness between these brothers. When we go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel is called to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. And I'm reading from the New Living, picking it up in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be the next king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. And he said, take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice as well. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse 
summoned Shimea, but Samuel said, neither is this the one that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought, and he had anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now, without question, we don't have to think about it too deeply to understand that this is an awkward moment in the house of Jesse. Here is David, the youngest of his brothers, being anointed by the same prophet who anointed the, the present king in Israel. Here he is amid his father and brothers, the freshly anointed king-to-be of Israel. No doubt, if this was not the origin of the sibling rivalry in the house of Jesse, it certainly did not help the cause. No congratulations are exchanged to David. No party is thrown that we can read about. No excitement can be found in the pages of our Bible. Being the father of a king would be a high honor. Being the brother of a king would certainly have its perks, but nobody seems to care. Those closest to David, his own family, who would no doubt benefit the most from him becoming king, do not seem to care. Those who should be most supportive and those who should be guarding and protecting their little brother, their son, their next king, do nothing. And as a matter of fact, the next time we hear David's name, he's back in the field, tending to his sheep and minding his own business. And when we skip over from 1 Samuel chapter 16 to our opening text of 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is the next interaction that we see between David and his brothers. It was our opening text. David, he left his things with the keeper. He goes to his brothers on the battlefield. David asks again, uh, what will a man get for killing this Philistine, verse 26, and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And all the men gave David the same reply. Yes, that is the reward for killing him. But here it is. Verse 28, but when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway, David? Shouldn't you just be watching your sheep? What about those few sheep that you're taking care of all the time? Why are you here on the battlefield? I know about your pride and I know about your deceit. You just want to see the battle. And here it is. The first conversation after David's anointing that we see with one of his siblings. And it's not really a good one. It's an uncomfortable one. Eliab attacks David with his words. He shows no concern about his little brother being so close to the battle, but rather is concerned more with rebuking him and tearing him down. What are you doing here, David? Your pride has got the best of you again. You're just here to watch the fight. Why don't you just go watch your two sheep? Why don't you just go home, David? This isn't a place for a young boy to be. But what the narrative really should have been was David, 
please be careful. David, please stand behind me. David, please stay close to me. Don't wander off, David. This is a battlefield. David, please head back home where it's safe. David, don't go talk to Saul. Please, David. David, don't even think about fighting Goliath. David, don't put on Saul's armor. David, where are you going? David, please rethink this. David, let me take your place. If you're really going to do it, let me do it in your stead. David, please, you're the next king to be, and I need to make sure that you're safe. David, please don't do this. David, don't walk out onto the battlefield. Whatever you do, don't challenge Goliath. But that's not what the scripture tells us happens. There he is, rebuked by his oldest brother, being torn down by those who should have been building him up, being torn down by those who should have been protecting him, if nothing else. And there David goes, out onto the battlefield to face Goliath. There he stands alone. And where are David's brothers now? Where is Eliab? Where is Abinadab? And where is Shimea in this moment? No doubt they see everything unfolding before them. This is not a spectacle that you can miss. A young boy walking out onto the battlefield to face this Philistine champion. No doubt they've heard the murmurs through the crowd, through the army, that David is about to face Goliath. But his brothers are nowhere to be found. Surely his brothers would want to be there. Surely at the very least they would be there close by pleading with their brother not to go through with what he's thinking about doing. Surely they would be there ready to pick up his dead body if that was the outcome at the end of the day. Surely one of the brothers is running after him saying, David, don't do this. But no, where are David's brothers? David, although maybe overzealous in the moment, he had good intentions. He wanted to kill this giant who was defiling the armies of God. He wanted to put an end to the fear-mongering and the suppression that Goliath had gripped the armies of Israel with. He was on a mission to liberate his fellow countrymen. He was preparing to fight the biggest battle to date in his life, but there is no support. No one has his back, not even his own brothers. It has been shown in studies that humans have the habit of being more difficult on those closest to them. Whether it be bitterness, greed, anger, or jealousy, there are many reasons that we can name. You can look at all the other examples I mentioned about sibling rivalry in Scripture. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, and we can go on and on. And I would say that there are instances that this can even happen more in the church than it does in the world. When a brother or sister, when a part of the bride of Christ is struggling... Struggling with sin, battling old habits, fighting off temptation. We offer malice instead of mercy. Instead of reaching out, sometimes we have the habit of pushing them down. All because, well, they should know better. They grew up in this. They've been around a while. They should know that they shouldn't mess with those things. As if any of us are perfect to begin with. And what makes this even more troubling is the state of the world that we live in today where wrong is right and right is wrong, where everyone is accepted, where nearly no lifestyle is rejected, where 99.9 .9 of what the Bible calls sin is not only tolerated but openly boasted, 
thus painting a picture of a world that is willing to accept them for who they are and a church that is portrayed as judgmental, full of condemnation and criticism for those that don't abide by what they preach. But this is certainly not the case. The church is the hospital for the hurting. It's a place of healing for those that are broken and a refuge in time of trouble. The church, let me tell you tonight that the church accepts all people from any walk of life, no matter how dark and sinful their past is. With open arms, we say, come through the door. If anybody knows what it is to receive mercy, it's the church. And if anyone should understand mercy, it's the church. And if anyone is to display mercy, it should be the church. Where are the brothers that when somebody is struggling, we pull them up to their feet and let them lean on us for support? Where are the brothers that when somebody falls back into old habits, we pray for them? instead of gossiping about the actions that they're partaking in? Where are the brothers that when someone is in the fight of their life, that we, instead of judge, we call them and ask them, is there anything that I can do to help you? I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you today. I know you've been down a long and dark road, but I am holding you up in prayer. Where are the brothers? Where are the brothers? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. In the new living, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. All that to say, we are not perfect. Nobody in the room tonight is perfect. Nobody watching this online right now is perfect. And we all struggle and we all fall and we all sin from time to time. And we need to make sure that the church is the main support system. We need to make sure that when people are struggling, that the church is reaching out with open arms to help them with whatever they are dealing with. You can look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 38. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. But the man, he wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road, and he passed him by. And next, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then, a despised Samaritan came along, 
And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm passing through town. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Surely if somebody was on the side of the road, it would be the priest. It would be the temple assistant that would stop by to help. But that wasn't the case. They went as far to look at the man that was injured and half dead, but passed by on the other side. Sibling rivalry. Where are the brothers? That when somebody is struggling, we are here to lift them up. Talking about Dassler Shoe Company. They started in 1924. Nike started 40 years later in 1964. Had the Dassler brothers stayed together, there was almost no doubt, almost no doubt that they would be the global sales leader in sportswear, topping the leader of today, Nike. The brothers had the same goal, same desire, same passion, but they were divided. They could have done more together than they ever could have apart. They could have. Even today, if you added up Adidas and Puma sales, they would actually top Nike, let alone had they just stayed together for the 40 years and trying to build the business that already existed as opposed to dividing. They could have done it, and they didn't. You know, there is this difference, and I, I've heard this spoken of before, and it's a term that we use at work, where I work. We talk about being aligned versus being assembled. And the best way that I can explain this to you is by thinking about a vehicle. Anybody ever had to do an alignment on their vehicle? Anybody ever had a vehicle that was out of alignment before, and you're driving straight, but it's turning right, so you have to turn left just to drive straight? You ever been there before? The car, the truck, the van, the SUV, it's assembled. It's all put together. But not everything is wanting to go the same way. And just as a vehicle needs to make sure that it's in alignment, if it wants to get where it's going with the least amount of resistance, the same is said for any group any church, in any business. We all have the same goal. Everybody in this room and everybody watching online right now, you have the same goal, and that's to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and to take everybody with us that we can. You know, we can be a church. We can be churches all over North America, and we can assemble together, whether it's 300 or 50. We can do it. But unless we are in alignment, assembling together is just not enough. It's not enough. We need to make sure that we are aligned and not just assembled. There's a story that I will read that took place in 2020, and it is my title slide. It was during a riot this year in the United States. And Officer Galen Hinshaw, he heard the call over the radio. One of his fellow officers was in trouble. A crowd of protesters had surrounded a police cruiser at the base 
of the Clark Memorial Bridge. The officer inside radio for, radioed for help as protesters strobed in blue and red patrol car lights banged on the car's hood and windshield. Hinshaw, a 4th Division patrol officer and part of the Louisville Metro Police Department special response team, drove as close as he could to the scene. As he got out of his cruiser, he was immediately surrounded by protesters, some yelling profanities, others bawling their fists. He made his way through the crowd wearing 40 extra pounds of safety gear, a baton, a vest, helmet, and body armor. And he was alone, all by himself. As the crowd grew, Hinshaw detoured to the front of Birno's pizzeria so he could keep his back to the wall. He needed a place to stop and reassess the situation to be sure that nobody could get behind him. He also needed to keep an eye out on his trapped colleague. Overhead, a police helicopter kept watch and occasionally flooded the intersection with the spotlights. Sirens piercing the air and protesters chanted even louder. Hinshaw's nearest help was still blocks away. The crowd moved closer and the yelling got angrier. Protesters hurled questions at him. He tried to respond, but he was drowned out. Drowned out by the noise of the sirens and the yelling and the crowd and the mob all around him. We do care, man. We care about you, he said. Hinshaw tried to reason with the crowd. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you feel this way, Hinshaw yelled, trying to make his voice heard over the anger of the crowd. The 32-year-old was scared. It was only going to take one person and everyone would jump in and he knew it. The special response team trains once a month, but that hadn't quite prepared Hinshaw for what was in front of him now. If the protesters decided to attack, there were just too many of them for him to fight off. Here we go, he thought, I'm preparing to be injured or maybe even worse, die. Hinshaw, he kept his voice calm as he radioed in. Charlie 12, this is at 1030. We need help. 10.30 being the code for an officer in danger. He watched people's hands in the crowd, making sure nobody had a weapon and scanning for things thrown from the protesters in the back. It was at this moment that a man emerged from the crowd in a red University of Louisville mask covering the lower half of his face. He put himself between the closest protester and Hinshaw. The Courier-Journal captured this moment in a photograph, a photograph that has now been shared across the nation on the screen behind me. Local entrepreneur Darren Lee Jr. spotted Hinshaw <clears throat> and the advancing crowd and linked arms with the stranger that had jumped in in the red mask. Once I saw the guy with the red mask step up, I said, I've got to jump in, said Lee, who also runs a child care center. It was reactive. I just went for it. He had no idea what would happen Next, I really thought at that moment, protect him. It really isn't his fault. He's just trapped in the cloud, crowd. He's just trying to maintain the peace, Lee said. He was also worried that Hinshaw would react and, and hit him from behind. So he turned to reassure the officer that they were going to protect him. He was looking nervous and scared, Lee said. If he panicked, then there was going to be a war in front of us. Suddenly, the protesters seemed to turn on Lee. One man who had marched with him for nearly the whole protest was surprised. Another shouted in Lee's face, how can you protect him? And Lee, he began to get nervous. Ultimately, five men jumped in and formed a human shield to protect Hinshaw. All of them strangers to one another. Nobody knew the name of the man to his left or to his right. Three were black, one was white, and one was Dominican. All linking arms to keep harm away from Hinshaw himself. 
half Pakistani. A human was in trouble, and right is right, somebody said. After reaching the bridge and watching some protesters throwing rocks at police cars, McClellan spotted Hinshaw as he walked around the group and thought, whoa, you're here by yourself in the middle of this protest? McClellan watched as the crowd around Hinshaw grew larger and louder. Then he heard Lee yell, lock arms, lock arms, everybody. That's when Julian Dilla Cruz saw the men locking arms, and he also jumped in. I saw the guys linking up, and I saw a weak spot, Dilla Cruz said, and he took up a position on the end of the line. He was nervous and scared. Things could have gotten really bad, he said. The entire scene lasted no more than two minutes, but it felt much longer for those who were there. Hinshaw's squad arrived, and Lee escorted him back to his unit, and Hinshaw thanked him. Here we have it. Modern day good Samaritans. Modern day people protecting somebody who was in trouble. Jumping in to protect somebody who needed help. We can come back to the music tonight. Where are David's brothers? When we go to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, it says this. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and they used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylon and settled there. They began to say to each other, let's make bricks, let's harden them with fire and we're going to make some mortar. And they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at that city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. The people are united. And they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. The people are united. And nothing that they try to do after this will be impossible to them. We live in a world where division is very obvious. And I don't need to get into the political field or talk about COVID. But if you read the news, if you just watch what's going on in Fredericton, in New Brunswick, in Canada, in North America, there is this sense of division this, this pressure point of separation between two sides when it comes to politics at the very least. And God has called us to be a church that is united. God has called us to be a church that when one is fighting, we fight side by side with them. That when one is struggling, we not only pray, but we do everything that we can to pick up a brother or sister 
when they are down? Where are the brothers? I close with this portion of scripture. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 14. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And so they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now this story, it paints an amazing picture. But there are just three main things that we really need to understand. That this was the perfect storm. We've got Joshua down in the valley fighting the battle. We've got Moses up on the mountain holding the rod of God and interceding and praying over them as they fight. And we've got Aaron and Hur there with him. And Moses, a great leader, no doubt, a great man of God, but he was tired. And so when things got difficult for Moses and when his hands got heavy, he had two people there to help him, Aaron and her. And here's what we have to understand tonight. Joshua couldn't have won the battle without Moses. That's just a fact. If Joshua was in the valley and Moses was not on the mountain travailing and praying and interceding over the people as they fight, Joshua could not have won. But Moses, he couldn't have held up his hands without Aaron and her by his side. And so really Joshua needed Moses and Moses needed Aaron and her. And so really, Joshua also indirectly needed Aaron and Hur. And what would it have mattered if Aaron and Hur were on the mountain and Joshua was in the battle, but nobody was there to pray? Or what would it have mattered if Moses was on the mountain with Aaron and Hur, but nobody was fighting down in the valley below? Not everyone is called to be a Joshua or a Moses. But I want you to understand tonight, whether you're in the room, in overflow, or watching online right now, not everyone is called to be a Joshua or a Moses, but everyone that is listening to me right now is called to be an Aaron or a Her. That not only when a brother or sister is struggling, that we can kind of get underneath them like a crutch and carry them along the way. Carry them along their walk with God. We are all called to be Aaron 
and her. Not only for them, but for our leaders. When our leaders, when our pastors are praying and they are interceding and seeking the direction of God for our church. When your pastor, if you are watching it from a different church, is interceding and they are praying over the direction that they want to take that church and asking for wisdom. Because there are people that are fighting battles, but they can't do it alone. We are all called to be Aaron and her. Standing with me tonight. Where are the brothers? We are all called to be the church. We are all in the bride of Christ. And if we want to get to heaven someday, if we want to take a city with us, if we want to reach into our community, if we want to have souls come into the, the kingdom of God and be baptized in Jesus' name, we can't just assemble. We have to be in alignment. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone that is in the room tonight. God, I pray for everybody that is in our overflow, for everybody that is watching online. God, that this word will go beyond just this sanctuary. God, that this word will go into every heart. God, go into every home that is watching right now, Jesus. Lord, you are calling us. Lord, in this season, Lord, you are calling us in this world to be a light, to be unified, to be brothers and sisters, to be a support system, to be that hospital for the hurting and a refuge in time of trouble. Lord Jesus, that is what you are calling us to be. Would you lift up your voices? I know there's only 50 of us in the room, but would you just lift up your voice right now and pray? Maybe there's some conviction that you feel in the room tonight. Lord Jesus, if I've ever offended my brother, if I've ever spoken ill of my brother or sister, God, I pray that you would forgive me right now. God, if I've ever sowed discord among the brethren, God, I pray that you would forgive me right now. God, if I have done anything to divide your church, God, I pray that you would forgive me. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. I think this is an appropriate song. Why don't we just sing it a few times before we go tonight? I need.